Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Um, it's really awesome to be here. It's interesting, uh, Rav Shmuley mentioned about uh, Mormonism and the Mormon community here. When I got off the plane today, I was going to pick up my bag, and there were about 10 people with this enormous banner which said, Welcome home, Elder Jeffs. And I wanted to, I, I almost like, well, I'm, I'm not really on a schedule. Maybe I could just watch and see when Elder Jeffs came back from his mission, I guess that's where he was, he was coming back from. So I had a, uh, a, I didn't realize that there was such a large population here, but I, I got a big sign literally today that there was a, a, a Mormonism, a, a large Mormon community here, which was very, very interesting. Um, what I wanna talk about today is we've just come through Tisha B'Av, and we're in this kind of weird part of the Jewish calendar year. Uh, we're actually, this is the run up, believe it or not, for Rosh Hashanah. And what I want to see is through our, uh, I, I learned a new word, lectionary. Does that sound? <laughs> lectionary means the public reading of what we do in the synagogue ritual that helps us get ready, really, literally for Rosh Hashanah, but, it helps, but it's through our public reading that we see kind of our relationship with God get a reboot so that we can get to Rosh Hashanah. It seems like we go from Tisha B'Av, which is Tisha B'Av, which is our saddest day, where our relationship with God is really kind of broken, really, really broken. And then through a series of seven weeks, we kind of get back to our relationship with God. And I want to show through the text that we read in the synagogue how that works. How does that switch work? So I just want to throw something out there for you. I know many of you might be parents or were kids at some point in time. And very often, you might have had a situation where you as a kid might have done something wrong. And you know you did something wrong, and you knew a punishment was coming. And the punishment came, and it was really kind of crummy. And then perhaps the next day, your parent wanted to say, well, let's make things all better. Let's go out and do something. And as a kid, you might have thought, well, I don't really know. I don't know if I'm ready to go back to the way things were. I I'll give you an example. My son, when he was very little, I think he was starting kindergarten, we decided to uh, enact a new rule in our household that we would come home and he would no longer be watching television except on Friday afternoons. So the first time I instituted this rule, he came home, he lay down on the couch, he took a blanket over his head and he had a silent protest for about 30 minutes. He was not happy about this. And when Friday came along and he knew that he could watch television again, I thought he would be just delighted beyond belief. It was a, he was happy, but it was tentative. It took a while for us to kind of live with this new rule and kind of reestablish our relationship. So I just want you to keep that little incident in mind as we start to look at how our tradition pulls us through in a way that 
we go through a part of punishment, and then we go back to a reboot. And let's just take a look at what we do in the synagogue, and this will help us see how this works. Because when somebody punishes you, even though you know you deserve that punishment, you can't really go the next day and things are just going to be fine. It's just not going to work. And even with our relationship with God, which I find is so interesting in the way that our tradition works. It understands that we have to take responsibility for our actions, that punishment is going to come, but if we're going to reestablish that relationship, you just can't go from the worst terrible punishment of all into a relationship that's broken, and then the next day everything is going to be, oh, everything's fine, everything's great. So let's take a look first from our sources. Let's take a look and see how this works. And, and see also if you buy it, if you think this is, this is actually something that will work. Uh, and we'll see where we're going because we're trying to get all the way through to Rosh Hashanah. Um, before Tisha B'Av, we have three haftarot, the reading of the prophets that we read on Shabbat morning. Um, three of them, it's called the three haftarot of punishment. That's what they're called. So Shadapuranuta, this is, this is this three of punishment. And what it does is gives us a foreshadowing in the prophetic literature of what's going to happen eventually with what we read on Tisha B'Av from the Book of Lamentations. Let's just take a look at what these are and see what's really going on. Let's see what the real deal is uh, as we lead up to Tisha B'Av. So if you look at the first Haftarah, all of these Haftarah, by the way, come from, um, most of them come from the Book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I will just say, uh, Yirmiyahu as a prophet, he's really our prophet of doom, <laughs> just to put it mildly. He's the prophet of doom. He's also considered to be traditionally the author of Lamentations, who actually possibly saw firsthand the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians. So let's take a look at this first Haftarah. If you look at it, let's look at the, look at the voice and what, what's really being said here. Let's take a look at this first source. It comes from the first chapter of Jeremiah. And look what it says. And the Lord said to me, from the north shall disaster break loose upon all the inhabitants of the land, for I am summoning all the peoples of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. They shall come and set up a throne before the gates of Jerusalem, against its walls, round about, and against all the towns of Judah. And I will argue my case for them for all their wickedness. They have forsaken me and sacrificed to other gods and worshipped the work of their hands. What is God saying here, especially in the last line? What's his, what's his mood? How's he, how's he describing what's going on here? Look at the last line. They've forsaken me and sacrificed to other gods. Very straight out, right? They're, they're worshiping other gods. But notice the language. They have forsaken me with a capital M. This is very personal. God is really personal here. It's not that they haven't been observing the law. It's not something that's taken in the third person. God is talking through Yirmiyahu, through Jeremiah, saying, they have forsaken me. We're talking about a personal relationship between the Jews and God. It's very personal, and it will get more personal in that sense that it's not just that the Jews were worshiping other gods or violating Jewish law. They were, as if we could say it this way, that they are hurting God. Everything here is extremely personal. Well, really, but, but hurt, but hurt. Hurt, very, very hurt. If it's, it's very much parent-child relationship. So if you work really hard and care about a child and they do something that is really something that hurts, it hurts you personally. It's not an abstract idea like they did something wrong. 
no, it's something wrong that hurts your relationship. It's very, it's, 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 God is angry, but it's almost like a personal kind of anger. Right? Forsake, yes, you, you have abandoned me. Not you have abandoned the Torah. Not that you have abandoned halakha. You have abandoned our relationship. I chose you. I made you special. I nurtured you, and you have left me. And we'll just keep that idea in mind because it really is important to understand the nature of the relationship, that it's not just this abstract idea that we did something wrong. We did do something wrong. But it's more than doing something wrong. It's something that really tore at the fabric of this relationship that God has with the Jewish people. Let's look at the next Haftarah. So now it's going to get worse. <laughs> um, that's source number two. And if you look at the last couple verses there that you have in the source, Here's God kind of spelling out the, the crime that you've done. I look at the last verse. For long ago, you broke your yoke, tore off your yoke bands, and said, I will not work. On every high hill and under every verdant tree, you recline as a whore. Now, that's extremely strong language. And the Jewish people being personified as a wayward woman this, is, this comes up all the time in the prophetic literature and also in, in the writings. So it's a relationship. If we think about, and we talk about this very often, as the Jewish people being the bride and God being the bride, being the groom, here is this relation, something, they've done something that is tore at the fabric of that relationship. It's almost as God is saying, you've cheated on me. You've, you've really lost my trust. You've cheated on me as, as, let's say, a, a woman who might cheat on her husband. It's, a very, it's very personal. It's to the highest degree of, 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 when you professionalize it, it's beyond just a little bit of mistrust. It's, it makes it huge in, in a large way. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very personal attack, but it's showing when, somebody's, when someone lashes out that way, even when God is lashing out that way, it's from a part of almost hurt. Here was a relationship that was great, and here's God saying, you, you've completely broken our relationship, and, and you're, and you're going to face the consequences for it, uh, but it, it's always this, it's this personal voice that you, that you, that you hear um, coming out from the prophets here. Um, Look again, at, let's look at the last Haftarah here. This is source number three, and I broke it up into three parts for you. Um, this is from Isaiah chapter one. Again, that personal voice. Look what it says here in the second verse. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, and they rebelled against me. Personal again. It's a personal attack. It's, it's beyond just a, a, a generalized rebellion. It's this idea of personal hurt. It's a relationship that is, is becoming really frayed, something that was very close and very personal for God and for the Jewish people. Look at the uh, latter part of that, of that part A. Again, here is God talking again. Uh, uh, well, to the prophet kind of relaying uh, God's message. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. This is verse four. They have forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel, turned their backs on him. Again, that personal kind of relationship. 
Why do you seek further beatings that you continue to offend? Here's the prophet saying, you know you're doing something wrong. You're so used to doing something wrong. Why are you still doing this? You're going to get punished. You're already being punished. Now it's going to get worse. It's a degree of necessarily being surprised, but if it is an idea of surprise, it shows that it doesn't take away our agency. In other words, we'd have to take responsibility for our, our actions. And even, uh, certainly when we do good, but we also have the potential to do evil. But there's still that hope there. You see this hope of God who's going to try and you know, hope, hope that at least the punishment will lead them back. But it, that's how important the relationship is. So maybe it's not necessarily a surprise, but it's a hope that here, I'm giving you this punishment, I told this is going to happen, but you still, you still can't get out of that loop. So it's, it's almost a, you feel this kind of degree of disappointment. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> Do you see kind of God's heartbreak here? I tried, and I've, I've given you punishments, I've tried to, to turn you the right way, and you, you just, or turning your back on me. I, I'm trying and it's not working. God predicts this. When, right. when he transfers authority from Moses to, to Joshua, he tells Joshua that people are going to sin and it's going to be hard, up to you to get pulled get back in line. But all we're doing really is fulfilling God's promise. But I think what the, what, the, what the prophets are trying to do is not to take away our agency. Uh, and that's something extremely important because then every evil thing that happens, if it's all predicted through God, there's no agency for people who do good and also for people who do bad. And I would like to see God that gives us the choice as human beings to do good or bad. And that's an agency where God actually has to pull himself back a little bit so that human beings can live in the world and take that risk. It's, it's interesting because in the, first chap, in the first part of Breshit in Genesis, we see God coming to that conclusion, like human beings are just going to be this way and I have to figure out a way to make it better. This way he's trying through punishment. It, it doesn't seem to be working. It's, 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 it doesn't seem to be working. And he's still heartbroken, really heartbroken, although the punishment is very harsh. We'll see how harsh it gets, very harsh but the agency is still there. That's kind of the idea that he has to pull himself back for, hu for any human beings to live, to live in the world, because otherwise we couldn't be in the same universe. So the big thing we have to remember is not, pre, um, is pre it's not predetermination. No. <laughs> it, it's not. God can do whatever God, God but, but because God, but he can control his power. In our idea of controlling his power, he can pull himself back. And that makes our God, the idea of God, uh, very powerful for human beings. That it's, we are not God's playthings, which is something to keep in mind. Other traditions have that idea. That might be, you know, if you think of the ancient Greeks, you know, the gods were up there just making mischief out of human, human beings. And we don't have that as part of our tradition, but they're pros and cons. You can either go the right path or, or go the wrong path which is what we see here now. But there are consequences. So I, someone said free will. It's not free will. It's really free choice. Free will implies there's no consequences for your actions. It's free choice. God is not making the choice here, 
but there are consequences for your actions, either good or bad, depending. So uh, what's interesting about this source is, is part A. This is how bad it is. Um, the, uh, the punishment starts, they start telling us about what the punishment is going to be. And it's really awful. If you look at verse 9 there, had not the Lord of hosts left us some survivors, we should be like Saddam, another Gomorrah, which is kind of an idea that Sodom and Gomorrah is our kind of code word for the worst society ever, ever. But here they're saying our punishment was even worse because Sodom and Gomorrah went up one, two, three, poof, gone. But here, their punishment lasted a long time. The siege lasted a very long time. It was really quite, quite awful. So we see that the consequences for the actions and how, how it is. Um, part B there is, again, part of, the, part of the punishment. And then if you look at verse 17, this is what so becomes very interesting. Then man's haughtiness shall be humbled, and the pride of man brought low. None but the Lord shall be exhaust, exalted in that day. When the Jewish people are being destroyed, God is going to be exalted. But over what? What is he being exalted over? What's going on there? If everything is destroyed. He's being exalted on the, on the ash heap of what Jewish society was. But isn't he being exalted out of fear and not love? Yeah, and that's not going to work. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Here it's almost a taunt, saying, okay, God will reign, and he's going to be king, but king over what? King over what? He has no people. It's destruction. It, does, it doesn't work. And if you look at part C, this is the foreshadowing of Lamentations. And in fact, when we read this Haftarah, um, we, uh, I just read it for my women's tefillah group <laughs> this past Shabbat, we changed the tune the tune of the regular Haftorah switches to the tune that we use for Lamentations. And this is very much the language that we're going to see. And again, we're describing Jerusalem and the Jewish people as a wayward woman. Not just one who cheats off a little bit, but someone who is a professional cheater, as a harlot or a whore, if we want to talk about it that way. Alas, she has become a harlot, the faithful city that was filled with justice, where righteousness dwelt, but now murderers. Okay, this is, this is begging for destruction. Anyone we know where else in our history we were people were described as murderers and a punishment had to come? The generations before Noah were considered to be just a complete and utter disaster. Our sages uh, tell us at that time there was no regard for human life whatsoever and we became murderers. So what did God do then? Yeah, had to do a reboot. That's a tough thing, as I was talking before. If we see God as the actor here, acting through evil people, that's, it's, it's, it becomes difficult if we, because we want to make sure that evil people, this is the consequence for the action. If they had followed God, God's advice, they wouldn't have these enemies coming and coming to destroy them. That's kind of the idea. But I think we get into a lot of problems if we have God acting through these people. Uh, he's kind of telling them, like, you could have followed my ways. I gave you this Torah. I gave you this way of life, which is the, you know, ba basically I think of the Torah as God's handbook. Like, here it is. I've given you a way to live your best life, and you refuse to follow it, and these are the consequences for it. So it's a little, I think it's a little tr tricky if we have God working through evil people. Uh, we want to make sure that human beings have agency at, at all points, for good and for bad. Um, 
and not put God in that situation as he sets the scene and we can either follow the path or not. But you're right. I mean, this is all done in a quasi-historical context. And remember, the people who were sitting there at that time, they're trying to make sense of why these things are happening to them. And they said they're deserving of the punishment. And it's hard for us because we don't think about our, of our lives that way. If something bad happens to us necessarily, we don't necessarily think, well, we disobeyed God, so something bad is happening to us. I don't think we think that way very often. And that's very hard for us to understand. But that was their mindset. Um, and it's hard for us with a modern lens to go and look at these texts and see how the people were thinking, at least from how it was being understood. So those are just two things to keep in mind. Make sure to have agency, but also to understand that from the place of where these prophets are writing, there really was an idea that of this, of this idea that if I disobey God, something might happen to me. Now, what that also shows us, though, is the idea of how close the relationship was understood between God and the Jewish people, or between the Jewish people and God that they realized that if they did something wrong, it was something against the relationship that they had with God. That's just, not just that they did something wrong in the general idea, but this was something that tore at the fabric of their relationship with God, which is a slightly different way of thinking like, oh, if I do something wrong, you know, lightning will come out of the sky and shoot, shoot me down. It's, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. So just to keep that in mind. Now, if you look at source number four, this is the lead up to Lamentations. So, if you read it over Tisheva Av, it is our most heartbreaking, wrenching piece of prophetic work that we have, the description of the, of the siege and then eventual destruction of the first temple through the eyes traditionally seen through the prophet of Jer Jeremiah. And just notice the mindset again, as you mentioned. This is the words that are coming out of Lamentations. And the piece that I have here, right here, it says, her enemies are now the masters, her foes are at ease because the Lord has afflicted her for her many transgressions. That's the lens. Again, it's hard for us with, a modern, with our modern sensibilities to think, oh, that's what they really thought? Like, yes, that's what they really thought. When they were looking at this horrible thing that was happening to them, that's how they made sense of it. And the fancy word is theodicy, but that's how, how, they, how they looked at it. And again, look at the uh, Echa chapter 2 there. In his blazing anger, he has cut down all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the foe. He has ravaged Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming on all sides. Here we start to have the actual details of how bad the destruction is. And they see it coming directly from God. And they do see the enemies as kind of agents of God, but as a consequence of their breaking the relationship with God. And notice in the last piece here, in the last part of the last chapter that we read of Lamentations, the actual last line is verse 22. You'll see there, for truly you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us. What's the tone there? What are the Jewish people saying at that moment? What's the status of the relationship between Jews and God at this point in time? Broken. Or what's the fancy legal language? Irretrievably broken. It's broken. And it's not the point of view that, of God that's talking here. It's of the Jewish people who are talking here. Our relationship is broken. Broken. You've punished us. You seem so far away from us. It is broken. And we don't end on that line. We actually repeat again the line right beforehand, which says, take us back, O Lord, to yourself. Let us come back. Renew our days as of old. 
We can't end this, even though this is a wrenching piece of work, we don't even end on that line. We bring up the line that's beforehand that's slightly more hopeful. But that is, that's a kind of interesting when we look at from a liturgical, there's reasons why when we read this publicly, we add that line. So what's our status now? We have the Jewish people. They have broken the relationship with God. They've been punished terribly. Through their lens, they believe that this has happened to them because they have disobeyed God, because they have ruined that relationship. And the state of mind right now is, you know, why should we even try at this point in time? Our relationship is broken, irretrievably broken, meaning from the point of view of the Jewish people right now, no. Like, our relationship is over. This is just, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching on, on both sides. Now, that's the state of mind. And this week, we're going to read a Haftorah, which begins this Haftorah of consolation. Now, you've just got, seen just snippets of how bad the destruction was. And just think of the Jewish people at this point in time. They just said, we're broken. Our, our relationship is broken. There's no redeeming value here. There's no way we can get back together. And then in this week, we're going to read a Haftarah where God's going to say, oh, I'm come to comfort you. Let's be friends again. <laughs> what do you think the reaction of the Jewish people is at this point in time when their prophets are telling them that? Do you think they accept right away? Skeptical, right? They're just coming out of this horrible destruction. They've said publicly, our relationship is broken. And... In the same way that my son wanted, to, I said, oh, I thought that Friday he would come and watch television and be all excited. And he was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust you. Like, I'm happy about it. But it's going to take a little bit of time. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. If you look at source number five, um, one of our scholars who lived in the, 12th, in the 14th century in Seville, um, he has, goes by the shorthand name of Abu Draham, his rabbi David ben Yosef Abu Draham. He is one of the Tosafists. One of the Tosafists, the Tosafot, Tosafists, were a generation of scholars who explained part of the Talmud. Um, many of them were related to um, uh, Rashi, the medieval French commentator. And on a page of Gemara, if you look at a traditional page of Talmud, they, they make it to the page. They're one of the commentators that make, make it to the page. And there, it's a group of, of scholars who have a voice here. And he says something very interesting. He has a commentary on liturgy. And he looks at this and says, OK, we just came through this terrible period. It's the three weeks. We start with the 17th uh, day of Tammuz. We move through these three weeks, and then it's Tisha B'Av, and the relationship that we have with God is broken. And now, instead of having three Haftarot, we have seven. And he notices it takes seven weeks to get this back together again. And it's very important. Remember, the relationship seems to be broken, irretrievably broken. And the Abu Draham goes through each one of the Haftarot that we're going to take a look at of the seven of comfort, Shipta Dinechemta, the seven Haftarot of comfort, and notices something. It doesn't take one. You would think God is coming to talk to you. Let's look at the first one. This is source number six. 
the seven haftarot of consolation. Here's the first line of the first one. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. God is saying, here, I've come to comfort you. Do they buy it? Don't buy it. Look at the next one. Look at the next haftarah that we say the next week. And Sion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. What does B'nai Israel say back? The prophets say, hey, God says, God's come to comfort you. And what do the, what do the people say? No, no. Don't you remember what happened? Don't you remember the horrible punishment? Our relationship is broken. You just can't come in here with chocolates and flowers and sweet talk me and get me back. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And this relationship is not working. You might be king of the earth, but you're not king over us now. We haven't coronated you king. You're not our people right now. It's going to take us a little bit longer. So look at the next half to wrote. Unhappy, storm-tossed ones. This is number three, the third one. It's through Isaiah, who's talking Ishayahu. I will lay carbuncles. I had to look up what that word meant. It means a bright green kind of stone, like a gem. I will lay these green gems as your building stones and make your foundations of sapphires. So what's this? What's God doing here? Sweet talk. I'm going to bring you gifts, candy and roses. Going to bring you nice jewelry, you know, beautiful green emerald cobochon, and I'll bring you sapphires, okay? What do they say? Uh, no, yeah. No, I keep thinking, you know, like in, in, in April, these horrible things happen. Women eating their children. Right, right, the worst of the worst. And, and it's, you know, as bad as the balls where they, they get on and on, where they sacrifice right, their children, yes. Right. What, it's very extreme. But so interesting, though, is that just through the prophetic lens, you see that this kind of working of God to repair the relationship. It, it, it seems to be not just important for us, but it seems to be important for God as well. Why give so many tries? It's, it's really quite fascinating. You would think, like, okay, it was a horrible thing, we know, and then God said, okay, I'm going to make it all better. And it is God talking, you know, God, God king of the world, king of the universe, and we don't buy it. We don't buy it right away. Exactly. And that's probably why it takes a little bit longer and also explains the primary function of the relationship. If it was something that was simple, one nakamu, one comfort might have worked, but it's not. And there's a reason why. So we're going to see what that lead up is. And here again, look, he tries again. In, in the fourth half Torah, I am he who comforts you. Hello, it's me. It's God. I'm God. I'm coming to comfort you. What ails you that you fear man who must die, mortals who fear like grass? Like, I'm God. I'm talking to you. This relationship is important for me as well. Let's try and make it better. Still not, still not going. Still not going. Again, here's the next thing, and he says, look at the fifth one. Shout, O barren one, rani akaralo yalada, you who bore no child. Shout aloud for joy, you who did not travail. For the children of the wife forlorn shall outnumber those of the espoused, said the Lord. What is God saying here now? It's not only I'm God, but I have the power. I'm it. 
put your faith in me. I can really make this better. And you would think that they, there would be an immediate response from the Jewish people, but still not working. So gifts didn't work. Saying I have the power isn't working. What's going to work? What's going to work? Look at the next one. Okay. The sixth one says, Arise, shine, for your light has dawned. The presence of the Lord has shone upon you. Here's Isaiah saying, listen, God is shining on you. Stop being so sad. Here's your time to get, get out of your funk and stop crying and get the show on the road. You don't need to be mourning anymore. It's only after this God has the power. God can comfort you. God might give you things that you need. God is the one who has all the strength in the world. And realize what you have in this relationship. God wants to rekindle this. God needs to put this together for you and for God. And then finally, in the last one we have, I greatly rejoice in the Lord. Okay, now um, my whole being exalts in my God. He has clothed me with garments of triumph, wrapped me in a robe of victory like a bridegroom adorned with a turban, like a bride bedecked with her finery. I don't think it's an accident that that's the imagery that they're using. It's this very personal relationship, like a bridegroom and a bride, like a bride and a groom, that it takes this long and this amount of time to make things better, to renew that trust and not just say, well, maybe he'll give me some stuff now and might take it away tomorrow. It takes a while for that relationship to go. I think it's also interesting that how many have to wrote of consolation do we have? There are seven of them. That's our magic number in our tradition. Okay. It takes seven, seven of them to move us from extreme grief to a, an idea of, of joy and where you, they can exult in God. And when we get to this last one, exactly, it's like sitting Shiva for seven days. There's an, a kind of idea that it takes that long because if you think about it, if we use that analogy, which is a great one, in the beginning, there's anger when you have lost. There's anger, there's grief, there's distrust. All those kind of emotions get played out here in a national stage between God and the Jewish people. Yeah. It seems that the, the but also to rekindle your relationship with God in that special in that special place and time okay in that in that idea again I, it's that magic now I think it's no accident that this is this is how the cycle works and how it takes that long for the relationship to over seven that's not seven days we have seven weeks of going from the lowest of the low to come to the high point of the year which is Rosh Hashanah okay and um this is where we're all moving. So for Rosh Hashanah to happen, one of the things that we do on Rosh Hashanah is we, we crown God as king. Now, a lot of people, if you look at the traditional liturgy, are very uncomfortable with this idea of claiming God as king, as ruler over me. Um, with our modern lens, we can look at this and it might seem very overbearing. And you might be very uncomfortable to look at that uh, kind of liturgy, but I want us to see it in a, in a, in a different kind of way. One of the um, Haftarot that we saw in the beginning, the ones of, of punishment, we had God's 
comp uh, uh, proclaiming his reign over the world, but it was a world of destruction and no people and ashes. What kind of king is that? Not a really great king. It's not a great king. So someone had mentioned um, that we need God, but God needs us as well. So when we come to Rosh Hashanah, it's a very important idea when we look at those Malchiot verses, those verses of kingship, to keep in mind that we're not proclaiming that we are being subservient for no reason. God only gets to be king because we make him king. We make him king. And it can't happen after Tisha B'Av. That doesn't work because we have no relationship. It takes that time for a, let's say, a relationship reboot, if we want to use modern language. Relationship reboot, it takes a long period of time so that you can come into Rosh Hashanah, not broken, but as a relationship renewed. Um, the Kada Kemach, who was Bachia ben Asher, who lived in the 13th century in Spain, he, has this wonderful, he had a, uh, this wonderful commentary on liturgy. And when it talks about Rosh Hashanah, he says this wonderful thing regarding this idea of crowning God as king on Rosh Hashanah. And he says, this is source number seven. And also in this mitzvah is an allusion to his blessed kingship. For on this day, Rosh Hashanah, the world was created and he was king, since there is no king without a people. It's really very powerful. An idea, and then he goes on of why we blow, blow a shofar. We blow a shofar because in, if you look in Tanakh, whenever we had a new king, we would you know, blow the horn. We would, we would alert everybody that there was, there was a new king. But what's so powerful about this is that it's necessary almost to have those seven weeks to redo this relationship. Otherwise, if we were coming in to crown God as Melech right after Tisha B'av, what would God be king of? <laughs> a destroyed nation or nothing, nothing. It's important to have that process. And I think it's very, uh, just kind of the wisdom of our liturgy and our sages to understand that it's important before we come to Rosh Hashanah, which is um, really our, our, the, the day of judgment. You know our holidays are out of order. We should really have Yom Kippur first, atone, and then we should have Rosh Hashanah. But we have it a little bit backwards. But in this way that we can crown God as king because we've gone through this process. And every year we go through this process so that we can come to the new year as crowning God king anew. But through us, through us. Again, this great line here, since there is no king without a people. And if you notice, in our last source that we have here, this is from the Machser on Rosh Hashanah. This is from the traditional liturgy. When we start the morning prayers, you know, whoever is leading the services then will say, they start by the liturgy, the Nusakos Hamelech, the king. This is how we started. On, other, on Shabbat and other days of the week, we don't start with that line, Hamelech. We do the coronation. But look what it says. Who sits on the throne that is exalted and uplifted, he who dwells in eternity, exalted and holy is his name. And if you notice here, look how this is structured. And it is written, joyfully exult in God, you righteous ones, for the upright praise is fitting. Through the mouth of the upright you are exalted. How is God exalted? How's it happening? Oh, people. God just doesn't come out exalted. How does God come to be exalted? Through us. Look at this entire prayer. You're exalted with words of the righteous. You are blessed, and by the tongue of the pious, you are sanctified. 
How is God sanctified? Through us. And in the midst of the holy, you are extolled. It's only through us does God get to be king. And that can only happen when our relationship is restored and renewed. It cannot come from a place of destruction. God can't be king over destruction. It has to be come from a place where there's a reboot. And every year there's this reboot, this reboot with a chance to renew our relationship with God. And guess who has to do the work? Really. We do, but actually, from if we look at our liturgy, who's doing all the work? God is doing the work. God is doing the work, hoping that every Rosh Hashanah will come and say, okay, you can be our king now. But if you see from the, the prophetic lens and liturgical lens, it takes, it's on God's part to renew this relationship, for this to work, for, for something that seemed to be irretrievably broken and bring it back, and bring it back to the point where we can go in Rosh Hashanah and when we say HaMelech, when we say the king, it's not from a place of, oh, I have this big king and I am nothing. No, I am crucial for God to be king. It's a very joyful place. It's a place of really not an equal relationship because God is, it's never going to be equal, but a place of not from nothingness, something of great import. And it really, I, for me, this really changes the idea of when I would look at Rosh Hashanah liturgy and go, oh, we're going to play in God as king, we're the king of the world, okay, that's great. But to understand that we as a Jewish people are crucial in that process changes the tone of what that looks like and what that feels like. Like, I need to be here. I need to be here every year. Every year we have to do it. It's like not, not one and done. We have to show up every year and renew that relationship. And it's that process that happens every year that's so crucial. That it's not just something that is just, you know, we just take it for granted. It's something that has to be worked on and we can't take it for granted. And from what we see from our, the liturgical lens and from the prophetic lens, God can't take it for granted either. That it's a renewal process that continues all the time. It's not over. And that all of us have a, a part in, in bringing that, that relationship back together every single year. And not to be complacent about it. It's something that's extremely important for us. And that should carry us until the, until the next year, hopefully. Move us to the, to the last. So if you have any other questions or thoughts, yes? Um, King, in the Katakemach there? Yeah. Okay. They were, look, he was looking for a proof text of when they used the shofar to blow. Uh, they blew a shofar to say that um, Solomon was king. So if you know what's happening there in the Book of Kings, uh, it's kind of a disaster because David is on his deathbed and the wrong son, the non-covenantal son, Adoniah, is trying to, has already taken, tried to take over. He had, poor David had many coups and many sons. He had many sons for many wives and Solomon was the covenantal son and then finally it was to signal not only that Solomon was king but that Solomon was the right king. So that was the proof text that he was, he was looking for and this seemed to be the the one that works the best. And I'm thinking that it, it wasn't just because King Solomon was the king at that time, but that somehow he was a symbol or was the epitome of something very important that, I, that 
I, I agree. And also, Solomon is credited with building the first temple, whereas his father David was not allowed to do so. So it, I, I, I think all those things work very nicely in the Katakemach kind of uh, uh, understanding of liturgy, his comment on liturgy here, all those, all those things. Yeah. Another question. Yeah. They were 40 years. 40. 40. Not 49. Not 49. <laughs> I want them to be 49. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, yes. It's, we have a lot of action in the Torah, like of year one and two, and then really nothing until like year 39. <laughs> 39, then everything. Actually, we're in the part of the Torah now. We're in 39, almost going into 40. That's where we're going right now. Um, Moses is, getting, is starting in the book of Devarim, which is the last book of the five books of Moses, of his, I call it the never-ending going away to college speeches, <laughs> where he's telling everybody the Jewish people is going through their history. He doesn't seem very optimistic about their, 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 their future in Israel. You know, it says, when you sin, not if you sin. So it doesn't seem to be the... But then it depends. It depends on what's going on. So that's... But it's in year 39 that that's happening. And I'm sorry, it's not 49. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rabbi, you've used the phrase relationship with God a couple of times, maybe more than a couple. Um, what is our relationship with God? Is it simply an affirmation that God is king? And does, what, what are God's responsibilities in this relationship? Because it sounds like our Well, it's, it's a little more. It's a little more. It's a little more. So if we think about the Torah in general, um, it's a covenantal relationship. God makes a covenant with us. And this is, what, this is kind of one piece of the covenant. So what do I mean about a covenant? A covenant is kind of like a contract. Any lawyers in here? <laughs> kind of like a contract, but it's not because a, for two reasons. One is, is that you don't have equal parties. God is here and we're somewhere over here. And also a covenant goes on forever. An important thing to remember about a covenant, it not only binds Jews to God forever, it binds God to the Jewish people forever too. And that's what I want to emphasize again is that dynamic relationship, that it's not just top down, it's not just bottom up, it's not just top down God telling us to do these things, it's also bottom up. So what claims can we have on God? And I think that's the question that you're sort of asking, I think. We have claims because when God makes a covenant for us, then we can ask things. So if you look at our prayers, we can ask things of God because he's made a claim on us. What's our, his claim on us? We follow mitzvot. He's supposed to take care of us. In other words, we follow his law. He's supposed to take care of us. And that's how we have a claim. And it's our direct line. Um, I, I use this analogy a lot. I live in Skokie, Illinois. Um, if I have a problem with my garbage delivery, I call the village of Skokie. I don't call the village of Morton Grove. They don't have a claim on me. I don't pay their taxes. I don't have anything to do with them, but the village of Skokie. And it's a very simple example, but the village of Skokie uh, wants, <laughs> demands of me to follow the rules of the village. But at the same time, as because I follow the rules of the village, I can make a claim on them. So it's a, it's a dynamic claim. And it's not just that God is king. We follow mitzvot, and he's supposed to take care of us. And in the same way that... God is supposed to take care of us, 
because we follow those mitzvot. Those are the particulars of our contract, are those mitzvot. But it, it's a claim on both of us. It's a claim on our behavior, but in the same sense, because God has that claim, we have a claim back on God. If you look at our daily prayers, we can ask God for things or demand that he show up. You can, you can only do that if you have a pre-existing relationship. If I don't have a relationship with God, then why would I be calling God? I don't have a claim. I have to have that relationship. And so that covenantal relationship, which gets played out here very interestingly, it's, you see it as very personal. So why would God even care to try and comfort us? Because he's stuck with us forever. So always think about the other way. Everyone thinks, oh, we're stuck with God. No, God is stuck with us too. And so that's why that dynamic shows up. So it's both. Just, I always want to make sure that just to see that it's always a dynamic. It's not just God telling you, do this or else. No, do this, and I will take care of you. And then if you need something, you have a claim on me as God. It's, it's more than just proclaiming God as king. Proclaiming God as king, but God is king who's going to do things for me because I've, I decided to follow God's rule and take those obligations upon myself. So it's bigger than just saying, well, God is king. It's, it's even more so, but it allows for that dynamic to happen. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.